But this morning, we are looking at Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, the center section of this chapter. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Luke 24, beginning at 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing them. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed, and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road, when he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has indeed risen and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we ask this morning that you would indeed open up the Scriptures for us. Open up the Scriptures that we might see the Lord Jesus Christ. We long to be with Him. We long to know Him better. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this is a very well-known story. It's ironic because this story of the traveling journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus is only recorded here in Luke. But it is such a part of our understanding of the resurrection and even of our understanding of the Bible itself that you will often be in a place where there is instruction going on about interpreting the Bible or understanding the Bible, and you will hear this phrase, the road to Emmaus. It's a little place that's actually kind of been forgotten. But here Luke records it for us, and he gives great detail and personal touch to this story. The detail and personality to this is such that some believe that the second unnamed traveler was actually Luke himself. Now, there is no way to determine exactly who the second unnamed traveler was, or even the exact identity of Cleopas. But it is a story that is encouraging, and it is something that benefits us today. And so this morning, I would like us to see three things as we travel down the road to Emmaus with Luke and Jesus and these two disciples. First, the story opens up, and we are opened up to a picture of people with cold hearts. Hearts that have gone cold because of circumstances around them and by a loss of hope. And then second, we see our Lord Jesus Christ intervene in their lives and bring to them the warm truth of God's Word. A warm truth that stirs their hearts with love for the Savior. And this truth continues to grow until it blazes into a gospel flame. A flame that cannot be put out and that runs throughout the area of Jerusalem. Cold hearts, warm truth, and gospel flame. Let's begin then by looking at the two travelers on the road to Emmaus. Luke tells us that that very day there are two disciples going to a village named Emmaus. Now, this is occurring at the very end of Resurrection Sunday. You have to get that in your mind. It is Easter Sunday. The tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled back. And now at the end of the day, there are two men traveling home away from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus. Emmaus is a very small place. As a matter of fact, we're not really even sure where it existed. It's only about seven miles, Luke tells us with great precision, from Jerusalem. But attempts to determine where it is have been unsuccessful. The closest attempt would be, I think, when the Crusaders went to Palestine and settled in Jerusalem. They found a place that they thought was Emmaus, and they did what Crusaders do. They built a castle there, and they called it Castle Emmaus. But we really don't know where it was, and that really doesn't make a fundamental difference because we're focused more on the people who are traveling than the place. 
Here are two travelers going home, and the one thing that becomes obvious to us is that the truth of what has happened on this day has not taken hold of them. Imagine this. It is Easter Sunday. The stone is rolled away. The disciples are discussing with women about visions of angels, about how Jesus is alive, and these two travelers are going home like it is the worst day of their lives. Because you see, for them, they don't grasp what's happened today. For them, the Passover is over. The holidays are over. And now they're traveling home. For them, the emphasis is on the fact that Jesus has died. And with Jesus, all of their hopes. You can imagine as they travel, they are not keeping a vigorous pace. They're kind of walking slowly, aimlessly. Not really that concerned when they get home. It would be as if you were headed on your way home and you knew you were going to go to an empty house with an empty refrigerator, with no one to talk to and nothing to eat. You don't exactly rush home in that instance. You linger. You look around aimlessly. You're trying to find some purpose even though you know you've got to go on this journey. This is what's happening to these two travelers. They are dejected. They are downcast. And they've got each other, after all, to help keep themselves miserable. You see, they're fully aware of what is going on, and they're not walking in silence. It's not that kind of depression. No, they're talking about everything that has happened. If you can imagine them walking along and making each other feel worse with every sentence, back and forth trying to top one another about how horrible a week it has been and how all their hopes have been dashed and how violent and miserable this has been. They're talking, Luke says, about everything that has happened. You can imagine them talking about the triumphal entry and the shouts of Hosanna, how Jesus was in the temple and how he overturned the tables of the money changers, how he was tried in the dark, and how he was dragged and beaten, how he was put up on the cross and killed and placed in the tomb. And then for them, worst of all, now even the tomb is empty. They don't even have a place where they can go and visit the body of Jesus. You can imagine what a depressing, downcast conversation this would be. But what we see, what Luke shows us, is Jesus... First at a distance, coming up behind them, quickening his pace to join them, Luke says. While they're talking, Jesus himself drew near and went along with them. Now I want you to understand and think about something about the nature of Jesus at this point. You would be hard-pressed to find a more important busier day for the Lord Jesus Christ than Resurrection Sunday. Right? He's rising from the dead. He's speaking to angels. He's appearing to women. He wants to meet with the disciples. He's going to continue to minister. And here is Jesus taking time out of his ministry to walk up behind and come to two dejected disciples. 
You know the verse that says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever? This is the same Jesus that you serve. You see, far too often the devil will whisper in your ear that you are not important enough for Jesus. That Jesus has much weightier matters that he needs to take care of. He can't be worried about your family or your job or your school exam or the things that are on your mind. You need to get in line. You see, Satan wants you to think that in order to get in front of Jesus, you have to go in front of these big number dispensing machines. You know the ones where you rip the piece of paper, and once you get it off, it says you are number 4,823. Wait in line. But you see, that's not how Jesus is. Jesus here is eager to come up behind these disciples, the ones who are lost in depression. They are so lost in depression that they don't even recognize Jesus when he's there. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine not recognizing Jesus right next to you? This seems absurd. Now, it's possible, maybe it is a lack of faith on their part. After all, they have not come to grips with the truth of the resurrection yet. But I actually think there's something else going on here. Luke alludes to it in the text. In verse 16 he says, Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Their eyes were kept controlled, Luke says. It's a very kind of hands-on word. You see, I think what's happening here is God is preventing them from seeing Jesus. He has a purpose for this. He wants them to see something else before they see Jesus. Keep that in mind. We'll see that in just a minute. But it does also remind us of the great danger that comes of being so absorbed in what is around us, so absorbed in our own problems, in our own concerns, that we look out and we miss Jesus. We look right past Him. We have tunnel vision. You see, what Luke is here telling us is we need to be aware of this. That we need to be on the lookout for Jesus because He is the only source of our hope and comfort. Jesus comes up to them and He begins then to engage in a conversation with them. He says, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? He sees that they're, they're very animated. Verse 15 gives us the idea that they're not just talking, they're almost debating the word Luke uses is. They're going back and forth, trying to point out things that the other hasn't thought of. They're very intent. And Jesus comes up and he says, so what's all this about? Now, you could imagine, it would be as if there was a long discussion going on about the attacks in Paris in a room with a giant TV showing the reports of the attacks in Paris. And someone walked up and said, so what's going on? You see, they're so dumbfounded, they stop walking. They stop. They can't believe he doesn't know what's going on. But at the same time, they're reminded of all that has gone wrong, of all that they wish hadn't happened, of the death of Jesus, of the burial, and now of the missing body. And so... Luke tells us that their their faces are downcast. They're sad. They're looking at the ground. And then one of them, 
by the name of Cleopas, we are told, answers Jesus. And so the answer that he gives is something that you might expect you would do. He looks at Jesus and he says, are you the only guy on the face of the earth that doesn't know what's going on? You were just in Jerusalem, weren't you? You're leaving with us. Everybody knows about what's happened. Now think about this. The events that had occurred would have been seen by virtually everyone in Jerusalem. Both the the end stages of the trial and the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus were all public events. People were very aware of what was going on. You'll recall we looked at that. And the talk of the town would have been all about that. No one would have been talking about anything else. It would have been on everyone's minds and lips. And so the two wonder, how is it that Jesus could not know? Now, I don't know if our Lord did this. But I can tell you if I was standing in his place, I would begin to smile. Because here... They're speaking to Jesus, who literally is the only one who really knows what is going on. Right? He's the only one that really grasps the import of what is happening. He knows exactly that the resurrection has happened and exactly what it means. And here, he's getting a lecture from two people who say, we really wish you knew more about what was going on. Now, think about that for a moment. Would we want Jesus to know more so he could be depressed too? So that he could take the wrong conclusion? No. You see, Jesus is the only one who knows. But he wants to get them talking. He wants them to see what they are missing. And so, much like in a Socratic interview at a university or a law school, much like the way you might get quizzed by mom or dad with a series of probing questions, Jesus begins to ask and a flood of information comes out of the two travelers. They, they tell us everything they know, that Jesus was a prophet, that he was mighty, that he performed miracles, that he taught wondrous things, that he was taken by the Jewish rulers, that he was crucified, that he was buried, that They went to go see the tomb and the tombstone was rolled back and there was no one in the tomb and they said they saw angels and they said that Jesus was alive. All of the elements of the gospel story are there, aren't they? The death, the burial, and the empty tomb. But what's missing? You see, all the hope that they had was in Jesus. And as they tell this story, think about it, the gospel story, the good news story, they are depressed. Because what's missing is Jesus. You see, they have all of the other details. They even have the empty tomb, but they have failed to grasp what the empty tomb means. That Jesus is alive. And you see, the gospel without the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is not just a shortened version of itself. It is lost. It means nothing. You see, they're missing the key element and they've actually even avoided understanding what they've been told. 
They have convinced themselves that the women were making up angels and making up a story because they had not seen it with their own eyes. And you see, when you do that, when you look around and you face the world from your own perspective, it's pretty bleak. But Jesus won't leave them there. He begins then to warm these cold hearts in the best way possible. Jesus looks at them and he gives them a bit of a rebuke. It's it's a mild rebuke as they lay out the story. He says in verse 25, Oh foolish ones. Now, I don't picture that there's any anger in his voice. I picture perhaps a a more upbeat translation of this would be, you clueless people. Really? You've just described all this to me and you don't get the main thing. Would you think for a minute? Think about it. Hello! The tomb is empty. And something more than that. He says, you are foolish because you are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You see, Jesus is challenging them. They're focused on what they know and what they can see. It's similar to what happened to the women earlier, you remember. Except for it's worse here because in addition, they don't believe the women either. The assumption they have, without further evidence, is that everything is lost. And what Jesus does is gives them a rebuke much like the angels did to the women. He says, you have the prophets. Now, this is very interesting, isn't it? Because I think if I were drawing up this story, and if I were to describe what Jesus would do, I would think the easiest thing, after they described all of what had happened and how hopeless it was, because the tomb was empty and Jesus was gone, I would think Jesus would stand there and go, Surprise! I'm Jesus! Look at me! I'm alive! Now that'll turn you from depression to joy in a moment, won't it? But do you wonder why Jesus doesn't do that? Do you wonder why God blinds their eyes? Why? It's because Jesus wants them to know and understand that they should have known. They didn't need to see him to believe because what they had was the very word of God. You see, this is a direct challenge to you and to me. We don't need to see some grave clothing with Jesus' image engraved on it. We don't need to find sticks that are shards of the true cross. We have God's word. We have the prophet's. And we should believe. Because you see what Jesus describes is having God's word should have told them to expect this. He says, didn't you know that the prophets talk about how the Christ had to suffer? That it was necessary for all these things to happen? In a way, it's as if he's saying, you should be joyous that the Christ suffered and died. Because that's what had to happen for him to come to glory. They should have expected Jesus' death. It had been told to them before. They had been told that the glory would follow that. We have a similar 
instance in our own lives, don't we? We can focus upon the circumstance of our economy and terrorist attacks and weather patterns and food and money and we can form for ourselves in our own minds a view about hope in the world and we can become depressed and downcast. Should we? No, of course not. Why? Because you have God's word. He tells you the end. God wins. Jesus is coming again. There is no reason to doubt him. Because we have God's word. And what Jesus then begins to do is to open up the Bible for them. Now, this is the joy of every preacher to think about this passage. I think if you asked me... If I could go back in time to any time and place in all of the Bible days, I would not pick the flood. I would not pick the garden. I would not even pick the transfiguration. I think I would pick being on the road to Emmaus with Jesus just to hear this sermon. Can you imagine him unfolding the scriptures? He shows that all of the Bible is Christ-centered. He shows that all of the Bible is gospel-focused. And he begins to use all of the Bible to persuade and to comfort and to challenge them. Now, don't get it into your mind that what Jesus is doing is grabbing random verses and finding Jesus in them. Some people view the Bible that way, as if Jesus is some kind of jack-in-the-box. That you pull a verse out and you wait a few minutes and bang, there's Jesus. What Jesus is doing is he is taking them through the understanding of all of the scripture, all of the various parts of the scripture, all of the stories, because you see, the purpose of everything in scripture, even things that don't directly speak of Jesus, is to reveal Jesus. So can you imagine what that would be like? He would say to them, do you remember the book of Genesis? Who do you think bruised the heel of the seed of the woman. Who do you think the seed of the woman was who crushed the serpent? That's the Christ. Do you remember the book of Exodus? What do you think the Passover lamb pictures? The sacrifice that redeems God's people and sets them free from sin and toil. That's the Christ. What do you think in Leviticus all of the offerings picture how we need a sacrificial offering to be right before God and to be cleansed of our sin? What about the book of Deuteronomy? Who do you think the prophet is who is greater than the prophet Moses and who speaks as Moses? It's the Christ. Turn to the Psalms. Who is the one in Psalm 22 who says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who is the everlasting sovereign king in Psalm 110? That's the Christ. Who is Isaiah talking about in verse in chapter 53? When he speaks about the one who was crushed for our iniquities, that's the Christ. Who is the one that he spoke about in Isaiah 55 that would bring compassion and grace? It's the Christ. Who is the one that Daniel describes as the Son of Man coming down from heaven? It's the Christ. And you can see he goes through over and over again. All of this gives hope and certainty to them. How could you not know that he would rise again? Jonah spoke of the one who came out of the belly of the fish after three days. You see, all of the scriptures are there to give us hope and certainty of Jesus.
Paul summarizes this in a very memorable way. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Every promise that God gives you is sure and is answered yes because of the work of Jesus. God's not waiting for you to finish the task. He's not waiting for you to catch on. He can perform these promises because they have been answered in the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when we come to the Bible, the Bible is not just background information for the gospel. The Bible is life. The Bible is what gives us hope and points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what they would be going through as they walk? They're not looking at the ground anymore, are they? They're not shuffling their feet anymore. Their pulses are racing. Their their temples are pounding. They're trying to think of all of the implications of these things. And you have to understand that Jesus begins with them with God's Word. That's where it begins for you and for me as well. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Just because the Word of God is critical and is the place that we're, where we start, it does not mean that the presence of Jesus is not important. Now that they have been founded upon the Word and the promises of God, now they can recount all of the promise keepings of God, now they go about and they see how much things have changed. Where they had no hope, no desire to go forward, now their confusion is gone, and they understand why things have happened. And so interestingly enough, Jesus prepares to go on from them. Now can you imagine that? Luke, again, is very vivid. Jesus is going to go farther. Verse 29, but they urged him strongly, saying... Now, the word here for urged has the connotation of them grabbing Jesus by the shoulders and saying, no, you can't go, really. And you can almost imagine, it is dark... There is food, but you can almost imagine them saying to themselves, we can't let this man go. We've got to hear more. Well, well, tell him it's dark outside. You can't travel in the dark. You've got to stay here. Sit. Oh, we got food. Look, plenty of food. Come on, sit. You can't leave. They don't want to let Jesus go. They are eager to hear even more. They have become alive. There's a question then that comes to you. Are you eager to retain Jesus? Or are you ready to let him go off? I mean, as you read the scriptures, do you figure out exactly what you're supposed to have read today to keep up with your reading plan and then get through it as quickly as possible and move on to your iPhone? Do you begin to say your prayers and go through them as quickly as you can so you can turn on the television? Or do you fall asleep in prayer because you want to pray to the last minute of your consciousness? Do you long to read and understand and know and to share the truth of God's word? Do you want Jesus to stay with you, to be with you, to teach you? You see, that's what happens when the heart is warmed. That's what happens when God's word takes residence. And so what happens is they begin to partake of a meal. 
Now, this is interesting. Do you remember how often in the Bible, especially in the Gospels, there are meals taken? I think Jesus has more meals than miracles. He gathers together with people to be with them, to visit with them, to encourage them. (coughs) And now, (coughs) they're about to partake of the food. And the next thing happens. Jesus breaks the bread, and Luke tells us immediately they begin to recognize him. I think the Holy Spirit is removing the scales from their eyes so that now they can actually see that they are with Jesus. But I think there's also something else helping here. I think as Jesus lifts up the bread to break it, they now finally see the scars. They realize how foolish they have been. They're now with Jesus. But the irony is, now that they see Jesus, he's no longer with them. He's gone. When he was with them, they didn't see him. But now as they understand, he's gone from them. And they begin to realize what Jesus has done. They say to each other, weren't we burning? Weren't our hearts on fire as he opened up the scriptures? You see, now they realize the true power of God's Word. And this warming of the heart by the Word of God begins to burst into a flame, into a gospel flame that is irresistible. What happens next here? They don't understand everything that is going on. They couldn't give you all of the details. If you ask them to explain exactly how they missed Jesus on the road, They couldn't tell you. If you asked them to explain how Jesus could suddenly be gone, they couldn't tell you. Because they're just at the beginning of their journey. But now they know that everything has changed. They can no longer live the same. That's what it means to meet Jesus. If you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, you can't explain everything. If you've walked with Jesus for years, you still can't explain everything. If you can, I would invite you to come up and give a surefire, perfect recitation for Dr. Helverson of the Trinity and how exactly it works. Some things are beyond us. We are on a journey, but we cannot remain the same. We cannot live our own lives. We cannot go after our own things. We must follow after Jesus. And that's exactly what happens to them. Luke tells us that that same hour, now that doesn't mean they sat around for an hour and then went. That meant as soon as they could, they get up and they go back to Jerusalem because they've got to tell somebody about what's happened. Now imagine this. It's dark outside. They're tired. There are robbers along the way. The food is out there. They don't want to wait to eat the food. They don't want to wait for daylight. They're not worried about whether it's reasonable to go now. The only thing they know is they've seen Jesus and they've got to go and tell others. In this sense, the gospel is not reasonable and rational. It is not circumscribed. Just like you cannot contain fire, you cannot contain the gospel. It is foolish to try. They head right off to go see the eleven. And 
It's so fascinating. They walk in the door, and I can imagine as they're going on that long journey, they're practicing what they're going to say. Now, now, do you want to tell them first, or should I tell them first? Do you want to tell them the part about Moses, or should I tell them the part about Moses? What are we going to do? How do we describe the bread and the breaking of the bread? How do we describe how he vanished? All right, we've got our story straight. Let's go. And they open the door, and what happens? They can't get a word in. They've been traveling and practicing for seven miles, and they walk in, and all the disciples look at them, and they say, Jesus is really risen. Yeah, we know. We came seven miles. Simon has seen him. Now, that's serious. Peter has seen Jesus. These aren't a bunch of women that could be considered flighty. These aren't angels that might be a figment of someone's imagination. This is blue-collar fisherman Peter. He's seen them. We know this from 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to Peter. And so there can be no doubt at this point, the tomb is empty and Jesus has appeared. And so what then do the two do? Because you see, this gospel message is contagious. It's already spreading before they've even gotten there. And what they do is they come to the disciples and to the eleven. And they tell them what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. What they do is they tell tell the disciples how they saw Jesus in the word of God on the road. And they tell the disciples how they saw Jesus in person around the meal. They can't imagine that anything could possibly be better. Their world has been turned completely upside down by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you looking for Jesus this morning? Are you excited to be with Jesus? Are you certain of the promises of Jesus? Jesus calls you to look in His Word. He calls you to come to His side. He calls you by faith to believe upon Him alone as the Savior of the world, of the one who was dead and who is now alive. Once that happens, nothing will ever be the same again. Depression turns to joy. Ignorance turns to knowledge. Hopelessness turns to hope. It's all found in the risen Jesus Christ. Let's pray.